Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word now, Revelation chapter 17. We're going to begin reading this morning again at the end of verse 6 and then through verse 11. As we're singing that song, I'm, I'm reminded that so many want to present the Christian life, especially when we gather for worship, as just one long series of victories from joy to joy. And, and sometimes if we come into a worship service and all we sing about is joy and happiness and those kind of things, well, that's, that's part of the Christian life, but the Christian life is also filled with sorrow. We walk through difficult days. Temptations win the battle, and yet the promise of God is that the hope, our anchor, is still secure because of what Christ has done for us. Our our anchor for eternity is not based upon our doing. It's not based upon our merits and our earned righteousness. It's based upon the love of God shown to us in Christ who lived for us and died for us, though we were undeserving of His love. And our hope and our security and our salvation rests in Him. The gospel is not what you do to earn God's love. The gospel is what He has done through Christ to secure your salvation. And we celebrate that this morning. Even in the difficult days, we have hope because of God's grace. This morning, as we continue to study the Revelation, we've entered into a particular section of the Revelation that describes to us, in spiritual terms, the destruction of the enemies of God and of God's people. Those enemies, as I outlined them last week, are the dragon and the beast and the false prophet and Babylon the Great, and then those whose names are not written in the book of life. Those are the five enemies of God and His people. And they are symbolically represented in the world. Now, today we're going to continue to study that. And we're going to look a little bit more at the beast and the great prostitute we learned about last week, Babylon, the the woman, the immoral woman. And I want us to read this whole section so that you can get something of the context again. But I'm going to look at verses 6 through 11 this morning. We'll learn more next week. But if you have a copy of God's Word, please... Follow along with your eyes as I read this and keep it close at hand. If you're visiting with us, we're so thankful that you've chosen to come here. And here's what we do in preaching is I'll read through this passage, I'll pray, and then my goal is to explain this passage verse by verse and section by section. We believe the Bible is the Word of God and that means every bit of it is important for us so that we can know God and live according to His Word. So that's what we're going to do. So if you would, just follow along as we read. Let me get my, my eyes on me here. Revelation 17, starting in verse 1, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he, that is the angel, carried John, me, away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and 
pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. And this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. And as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords, and King of kings, and those with him are called the chosen and faithful. Father, as we come to this, port, uh, this part of our worship and we focus in on your word, would you teach us what it means? Teach us to have uh, hearts and minds of understanding. Teach us to see the pictures that you are showing us here as we can be reminded that this book is not a puzzle book, it's a picture book. And there are symbols intended to not, not confuse us, but to reveal to us the reality, the spiritual reality of the world that we live in. And so I pray that you would give me wisdom and strength and passion as I proclaim the truth. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to receive. But, but understanding is not enough. You want us to live out that understanding. We don't want to be hearers of the word, but we want to be doers of the word as well. So, Father, give us instruction, help us to see clearly, and help us to walk in this world in a way that would bring glory to our Savior and to you. We pray in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. The Hoover Dam. How many of y'all have ever been to the Hoover Dam? All right, a lot of hands. Never been there. Only seen it in pictures. Never driven by, anything like that. The Hoover Dam was formerly called the, the Boulder Dam. It's located in the Black Canyon region of the Colorado River at the Arizona and Nevada border. The dam was constructed back in the 30s, between 1930 and 1936, and it is the highest concrete arch dam in the United States. It measures 726 feet high, 1,244 feet long at the crest, and it contains 4,400,000 cubic yards of concrete. It's a lot of concrete. And all of the steel and all of the concrete serves the purpose of holding back a massive amount of water, and it creates a lake. Lake Mead is what is created by this particular dam. Now, if you know anything about 
these things. They don't just put a dam up in the middle of a river for no reason. It has a purpose. The, the purpose is to hold back that water and then to utilize that water to generate hydroelectric power. The, the water is also used for irrigation and it's used for the domestic water supply. The point of this entire structure, all of this engineering, all of the effort, all of the years, and all of the, the construction materials that went into it, the purpose of the structure is to hold back the water so that it can be used for life-giving purposes. And as we see here, if you ever drive on 78 going to Levon from Wiley, you'll see that there come a time when, when the dam needs to be opened and East Fork will open up and the, and the water will spill out of it. There are times when, because of rainfall, the water source behind the dam will swell and it'll put pressure on the dam and so they will open up sluice gates to allow the water to come forward and, and to uh, you know, take some of the pressure off of the dam. That happens on occasion. And I bring all of this up to, to paint a picture in your mind, to picture in your mind this massive amount of destructive water. If, if that dam were to fail at any point, to completely and utterly fail, the destructive force of the water coming out of Lake Mead would absolutely destroy everything in its path. And I want you to have something of that picture in mind, and I want to relate it, if possible, back to this understanding that we have as we read the scriptures, that the wrath of God, the anger of God, the judgment of God towards sin is in fact being held back like a dam. And that wrath or that fierce anger towards sin is building. And there are times in history when, when God unleashes a portion of judgment upon a particular nation. We see that in the Old Testament. We see that when, when God chose to judge the nations who were oppressing his people, he would do that. He would open a sluice gate, if you will, on his wrath, and he would pour out judgment upon a particular nation because of their sin. We even see in the, the book of Romans that God talks about the, the judgment of God being poured out on a, on a culture, and, and the, the moral boundaries that God puts on a culture can be removed, and that is a form of God's judgment. Romans 1 tells us this. So there are times when God unleashes a portion of his judgment. He opens those gates to allow some of that to go through. And yet, as we continue to read the Revelation, we are told, we are reminded over and over and over again that there is coming a day when the dam will break completely. When the judgment of God's wrath will be completely poured out. And it will be poured out on those five enemies that we described or that I described just a few minutes ago. And when it is poured out, it will be poured out according to God's judging purposes. Our world is on a collision course with destruction. Hence the title, The Road to Destruction. And there are demonic players that are at work in the world today and they too are on that road to destruction. Specifically, the beast and Babylon the Great. They are on the road to destruction. And that's the focus of this passage that we're reading here. But along the way, there are some lessons that John needed to learn. And it's a specific lesson about fear that we can learn as well. So if you have your Bible open still, look back with me at verse 6. We know a little bit about where we're going. We're going to see the destruction of the beast and the woman. But, but notice... At the end of verse 6, as John sees this vision, 
He sees the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, drunk with the blood of the martyrs, and then he saw her, and it says that he marveled greatly. You see that? He marveled greatly. And then the angel said to him, why do you marvel? Now this may seem like a small matter, but this is actually a lesson for John. It may seem like a small thing that John marveled greatly at what he saw in this vision. But he had seen this vision of this terrifying and horrific woman who is celebrating by drinking the blood of God's people. That's a pretty terrifying picture. The text tells us that John marvels, and the word marvel here means a couple of things. It means to be amazed, but it also means to be disturbed. It carries this idea that what John saw, he wasn't simply like us, struggling to understand what it means, but he understood something of what it meant, and he was disturbed by it. There was a sense of fear in his reaction to it, and that's why the angel rebukes him and says, why do you marvel? Now, if it's simply that John can't understand, then the rebuke would not be so necessary. But the fact that the rebuke is here leads me to believe that what's going on here is that as John sees this, there's a sense of of shock and a sense of fear. And who can blame him? And we've been studying this for 47 weeks. I looked at my notes to see how far we've gone. We've been studying this book for a long time, and along the way, we have seen... uh, increasingly nightmarish visions of the persecution of God's people. We have seen the spiritual reality of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet and waging their war against God and against the gospel. We've seen this over and over again. We've seen the kind of visions that even makes our hearts quake a little bit. We all experience, as we read this and as we think about this and as we see what's going on in the world today, we all experience fear at different levels. And the Bible has much to say about fear. You may know this. It's been said that the command, do not fear or do not be afraid, can be found 365 times in Scripture. Almost as though God knew we needed to be told, don't be afraid every single day of the year. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. It's there over and over. And the Bible teaches us that there's, there's two different types of fear. There's a type of fear that is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of understanding, right, from Proverbs. But there's a type of fear that we're rebuked for having. There's a fear of man, and then there's a godly fear. And out of those 365 different instances of the command, do not be afraid, most of them are instructing the people of God to not fear what men may do to us, but rather put our trust in the promised love of God. The Lord Jesus even taught us, he taught his disciples in Luke chapter 12, he says, I tell you this, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. And then he goes on and he says, but I will warn you whom you should fear, fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Friends, there is a type of fear that is misplaced. A fear of man, a fear of persecution, a fear of the beast in its representation. But then there is also a type of fear that profits our souls for eternity. Jesus says that the power of man extends no further than death. Man has no ability to do anything beyond that, and yet, our our Creator does. We should fear God, because God's 
a power, God's ability has no boundaries. His power extends beyond death. It extends into eternity. And Jesus tells us that we should fear God. We should not fear man. And that seems to be, in my estimation, the reason for the angel's rebuke. John has allowed something of his fear, something of this fear of persecution or this fear of the enemy to overwhelm his heart. Okay. So you, you might be thinking at this point, you might not, but you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, we're talking about fear. Fear in God. I mean, aren't we past that? Isn't that like an outdated issue? I mean, shouldn't we, in, in the 21st century, shouldn't we just talk about the love of God? I mean, isn't that an old-fashioned notion to fear God? Well, I would argue that, no, it's not an old-fashioned notion, but I would also argue that the fear of God and the love of God are not at odds with one another. There is a type of fear that goes hand in hand with love, a type of fear that draws us closer to God rather than frighten us away from Him. It's a combination of fear and love that produces trust. I'll give you an illustration, and I've used this illustration before. I'll give you a little illustration. When, when my kids were little, uh, it was not uncommon. If you were to come knock on our door, that you'd come in and all five of us, my wife and I and our three kids, would be dressed in superhero costumes. We were, we were in that phase of life when the kids were little and superheroes, that was the thing. So it, we would be in there fighting, right? We'd have our costumes on and our masks and our capes and our superhero weapons and we would be running around fighting against the, the bad guys together, the imaginary bad guys. And then sometimes we'd be fighting against each other because that's just what happens when you start playing that game. And on one particular evening as we were doing this, I remember I, was, I had hidden myself behind a doorway and my son came running through the doorway and I knew he was coming because we were just running in circles. And as he came close, I jumped out from behind the door with my mask on and my cape on and my weapon, and ha, I got you, you know, that was just playing the game. And something happened in him. In that moment, he saw me, and in, in an instant, he was afraid. We had been playing the game, but there was something about that that just took him by surprise. And what he did next helped me to learn something of this lesson. He was afraid, but he dropped his weapons and he ran to me, not away from me. He grabbed a hold of my leg and he buried his face in my leg because he was afraid and yet he knew that I loved him and therefore, even though he was afraid, he trusted me and he ran to me and not away. And I learned something that day. I learned something about that combination that there can be a fear and it's a fear that doesn't drive us away from God. It's a fear that drives us to God because we know he's good, and we know He loves us, and we know because of Christ that we are secure in Him. And that's what Jesus is calling for from His disciples. And I think that's something of what we can learn from this rebuke that John receives here. A fear of God coupled with a love for God can cause us to trust God even though death might be imminent, even as we stare down the enemy. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, the same John who wrote the Revelation, he says this, he tells us that perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. We no longer fear the punishment of God. When God pours out his judgment upon these enemies, the church, the, the believer, the Christian shouldn't fear the judgment of God. And here's why. Because the judgment we deserve has already been poured out. That's what Christ was doing on the cross. 
He wasn't just setting an example, saying, hey, you should live a sacrificial life so that God will love you. No, he was sacrificing himself. He was enduring in his flesh the judgment that you and I deserve because of our sin. He drank the cup dry. There is no longer judgment to be poured out upon the people of God. He endured that on our behalf. And because of that, our fear of God, our respect for God, doesn't cause us to run away in fear of His judgment. It causes us to run to Him in understanding and appreciation for His love. He is an awesome God. He is a God who is worthy of our fear. He is a God who is worthy of our awe. But He is also our loving Father who embraces us and promises to keep us safe. No matter what happens in this world, He will never leave us nor forsake us. Right? And there is nothing, according to Romans 8, that can separate us, nothing in all of creation that can separate us from his love. So we don't fear what we see. We we reject the fear of man that wells up in our hearts, and we should reject the fear of the demonic attacks that we read about in this revelation, and we should reject sinful fear of man, but also we should trust in the promised love of God that he will never leave us, he will always be with us. And we also have some knowledge, we have some understanding That those who oppose us, those who oppose God's children, well, it doesn't end well for them. So we've learned a little bit of a lesson on fear. Now let's look at the beast again. Let's try to unmask the beast. Look at verse 8 with me. The beast that you saw, this is the angel speaking to John, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Now, when this whole thing started, the angel promised John, he said, I'm going I'm to explain to you the mystery of the woman, but he starts by describing the beast. And obviously, that means that the beast is more important than the woman at some level. The beast is more important than the woman. She rides upon the beast's back, not in the sense that she controls him, but he serves as the foundation for her existence and her effectiveness. The beast gives her a platform Because he has the greater power. And as we continue to read and as we will see in Revelation 13, the beast gains his power from the dragon, which is a reference to Satan himself. We'll read that in just a moment. But the angel describes the beast as the one who was and is not and then is about to rise from the bottomless pit. We we have to understand what that's pointing us to? What does that mean for us? What what, what should we understand about that? And we will, but before we get there, I want you to notice something. As we've been studying through the Revelation, do y'all remember I've talked about how the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet are, are meant to serve as a counterfeit to the Trinitarian understanding of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Y'all remember that? Well, counterfeiting is all over this book, and it's being revealed right here in the language that's used to describe the beast. I mean, think about this. Jesus is the one who is described as the one who was and is and is to come. And this is a form of counterfeiting. This is a form of blasphemy. The the beast is being described in in a corrupted way that Jesus is often described. And that shows that he's a counterfeit to Christ. He is the false prophet, if we remember from our studies previously. He's attempting in this language to mock the Son of God. But what do we know about the beast? Do y'all remember we've already studied him? I want to go through all of the details of this, but 
I do, for the sake of those who are just joining us today, I want us to understand that this is not the first time we've met this beast. We read about this beast in Revelation 13. So if you want to flip over to Revelation 13, just go to the left a little bit, and I'll read verses 1 through 8. This is where the beast is first described to us in the Revelation, but this is not the first time we've seen this beast. I'll get to that in a minute. Revelation 13, starting in verse 1, John, seeing a vision, saw the beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. That, that helps us to understand that this is the same beast that we're seeing in Revelation 17. But it goes on, and he said, And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So right off the bat, we can understand something, and I, I won't go back to it, but this is symbolic, the symbolism of the leopard and the bear and the lion's mouth. All of this is, is intended to show us something in a symbolic way, and we studied that months ago. Verse 3 tells us that out of, or one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, and its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled. Because of this, as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth who will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So hopefully you can see the similarities between Revelation 13 and Revelation 17. This is the same beast. And the symbolism that we're seeing here, though it is massive, it still applies. This beast is symbolic, and the beast represents something. Not an individual man, but the beast represents the power of the demonized state. He represents the wicked kingdoms of this world. And this relationship shows that the nations of this world, the unbelieving nations of this world, are empowered by spiritual forces of darkness. And, and look, I'm not just making that up. We know this because Daniel, all the way back in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel was the first one to see this beast. And when he saw the beast, he didn't understand it. So he asked the angel that was showing it to him. And the angel explained, this beast represents the nations that are to come. So the beast is representative of something. And that something is the nations that make up the kingdom of this world. As we think about the, the scriptures and what God has revealed to us about what he's doing in the world, we know that there is the kingdom of God. And we're, we're not a nation state. We are a kingdom. A kingdom spread out all over the nations. And that there is a kingdom of this world that is made up of nation states. And as we've been studying, we've been learning that the demonic powers in this world function within those nation states to put themselves in the position of God. And to oppress and oppose and persecute the people of God. That's the picture we see throughout the book. 
This beast represents demonic and tyrannical state powers, national governments that work to persecute believers during the church age, during the between the first and second coming of Christ. He represents the evil nations of this world who seek to take the place of God in the hearts of humanity. And he is a counterfeit put forward by our enemy, according to this, this is what we're being shown in this revelation, he is a counterfeit tempting us to put our hope in the state, to put our hope in its philosophies, to put our hope in, its, in the government, to put our hope in men rather than in Christ. That's the picture that John is painting for us. But what about this life, death, and resurrection of the beast? What about this he was, he is not, and is to come? What is that all about? Well, think about it. If the beast is a nation or a series of nations set against the people of God, the beast represents nations and kingdoms and empires that have been put forth in their power in order to persecute and destroy the people of God. And it's not talking about one nation, it's talking about a series of nations. Think about it for a minute, the kingdoms that we learn about as we read in Scripture who have set themselves in the position of God, going all the way back to the Tower of Babel. What was the point of that? All those people coming together and building a monument and saying, look at what we've done, and God comes down and he destroys it because they're putting themselves, they're building an idol in the place of God himself. And it is not a mistake that Babylon, the symbolic kingdom of this world gets its name as a derivative of Babel. It's not a mistake. Babel was the first, put itself in position of God, and God brought it down. And then after that, it was Sodom and Gomorrah, and God destroyed that particular city. And then after that, it was Egypt, and then God came in the Exodus, and he rescued his people, and he destroyed that nation. And then it was Assyria, and then eventually it was Babylon, and it was King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar built an altar to himself and made everyone worship him. You remember that story. And then after Babylon, it was the Medo-Persian Empire. And then after that, it was the Greco-Roman Empire. And time and time again, these nations that set themselves as in opposition to God and in opposition to God's people, they rose and they fell. People of God came under attack during the, the reign of these nations, but their power was only on the, the world stage for a season. And the nation that once persecuted the people of God would fall. But guess what? A new nation would rise, right? And it rise right out of the bottomless pit, which is a reference to the, the place where Satan dwells. I think that's the symbolism here. That's the picture of what we're seeing. A nation that once persecuted the people of God would fall, and then it would rise again. And again and again, the beast appears in a new embodiment. But what you have continually happening from start to finish is these two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and His people and the kingdom of this world and every new iteration of it. The forms change, but the essence remains the same and I believe that that is how we should understand this language. And I believe it's consistent with what Daniel reveals to us and what we read in Revelation 13 and what we're reading here. And notice that as these nations rise... It's those who dwell on the earth that give their allegiance to that nation. Look at verse 8. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, they will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Now that language of those who dwell on the earth, that's a, that's a technical term throughout the, the book of Revelation and it refers to those who have rejected Christ. It's referring to unbelievers. Unbelievers. 
Anytime you see that terminology in the Revelation, that's, that's what it's referring to. It's referring to those who've rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who, by virtue of their love for the world, have given their admiration and worship to the beast, to the nation. They admire its power to raise a new head after every defeat. But notice there's a spiritual dimension to their idolatry. It has to do with the fact that their names were not written in the book of the Lamb, the book of life. There's counterfeit here. There's, there's the, the opposite side of what we understand as believers. Because the scriptures do tell us that God has a book. And God has written names in that book. And those names have been written before the foundation of the world. And it is the names of His people those who trust in Christ. In, in Ephesians chapter 1, we read this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. You see, it is God who inscribes the name of names of his chosen people in his book. It is God in, in the, the pre-creation decrees where he determined what he was going to do in calling out a people and setting his love upon a people to create for himself a people, a kingdom. And this is not a mystery. This is in the scriptures as clear as it can be. And these individuals who have given their devotion to the beast, who have given their devotion to the state, to the world, their names have not been written in the book. Now let's pause on this for a second. This is big theology, right? This is big God theology, not little God theology. This is theology that puts our focus on God and His decrees, not on us. We are the recipients of His mercy, but He's the one who pours this out. And the fact that there are names written in the book, and those names have been inscribed by God Himself before the foundation of the world, it should help you understand that if you're a believer in Christ today, you are as secure as you can possibly be. You are not an afterthought. God had a purpose and a plan for you before He ever said, let light be. If you are a believer in Christ, there is no greater security against the enemy than the fact that your eternal destiny was established by God, purchased by Christ on the cross, and sealed by the Holy Spirit. And this whole plan started before the beginning of the world. You see, God is sovereign over salvation, and God is sovereign over all of humanity. And what it means for God to be sovereign means that His plan and His purpose will stand. There is nothing that can thwart what he is going to do. What he purposes, what he plans, he is absolutely free to accomplish every single bit of it. That's what his sovereignty helps us understand. His purpose is fixed. It cannot be overthrown. Before creation, God had a plan. His plan was to pour out his saving love on a chosen people. And, there, and he wrote our names in a book. And over the course of time, God revealed himself and he revealed his word and he revealed his law, he revealed his holiness. And then he revealed his son who lived a righteous life that we couldn't hope to live. And then he died in the place of sinners to redeem us, to ransom us away from the judgment we deserve. And he 
was buried and he rose from the grave in truth and in power and in flesh and blood. And by virtue of what he has accomplished, we now, in the course of time, are brought to life by the Spirit of God. And therefore, God the Father planned our salvation, Christ the Son accomplished our salvation, and the Spirit of God has applied our salvation, and we can now look back on all that, and we look at the Scriptures, and we know that what God is doing in us now, He started before it all began. And brother, sister, that is, there is no more secure understanding that you can have than that. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, God had a purpose for you. But this passage is not talking about the names that were written in the book of life, but the names that were not. And what that means is unbelievers don't have the same comfort that you and I have. Individuals who reject God and say, well, I'll just go on my own. I'll I'll just trust my own way. There is a road, and the end of that road is destruction for those who reject God and His saving love in Christ. There is no comfort for those whose names have never been written in the book of life. Today their eyes remain closed, their hearts remain hardened in their sin, and their allegiance remains fixed upon the beast. Because worldly people will always long for worldly power and worldly security and worldly pleasure and worldliness is what the beast represents. But God has a plan for this beast. Notice what he says here, that the beast is going to rise from the bottomless pit But then it will go to destruction. That's in verse 8. And then later in verse 11, he says the same thing. The the beast is going to rise, remain for a little while, but in the end, the beast will go to to destruction. It's as if the angel wants John's fears and our fears to be completely put to rest. Yes, we should fear God and love Him and trust Him. But even as we look at this beast and all that it tries to do, we should have this understanding that the end for this beast is destruction. He appears to be invincible. He appears to be able to raise up every new iteration, but his reign is coming to an end. So we've looked at this lesson on fear. We've looked a little bit at unmasking this beast, and there's more to come in weeks. But let's look now at the seed of this woman. There's some interesting stuff we need to understand here. Look at verse 9. The angel actually says, This calls for a mind with wisdom. Can we, can we amen that? Um, I don't believe that there is a chapter in the book of Revelation that is more rich and thick with symbolism and, and imagery and things moving around than this particular chapter. And this is the one that the angel says, hey, if you want to understand this, you've got to have a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. This calls for wisdom. But what type of wisdom? What type of wisdom does this call for? The type of wisdom the angel is referring to is not necessarily related to the study of history or world politics or global geography. The kind of wisdom he's talking about here is a spiritual wisdom, a theological wisdom, an understanding of the Word of God being applied to what John is seeing. In other words, this calls for wisdom from God. And it is a wisdom that should allow John and all the people of God to see through the deception of the beast and to avoid the seductions of Babylon. Now, if we're going to understand this beast and what it represents, 
And we're going to have to piece together what Daniel says in Daniel 7 and what John has already revealed in Revelation 17. We understand that this beast represents the state. That's the, that's the ultimate symbolism here. But, but the angel says, but the, the beast also, these, he has seven heads. So a seven-headed beast. And then those seven heads are seven mountains, right? Did I read that correctly? The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. And it doesn't even stop there. There's more. Now, many commentators will say, and you've probably studied this along the way, and they will say that those seven mountains refers to the city of Rome. Do you know why? Because Rome rests upon the tops of seven hills. And so there's this connection that most commentators will make. Uh, that that the, the city, the, the beast, in this particular iteration of Babylon is referring to Rome. And I can get behind that. If it's the case that this is a, a, a reference to Rome, a mysterious reference to Rome, then the Roman Empire is being identified as the current form of the demonic state. And that would make sense because Rome was doing everything she could to persecute the people of God. But there's more than just that. It's not just that the seven heads represent seven mountains. It also says that the seven heads are also seven kings. So that, that's the symbolism. There's, it's, it's varied. It's seven heads, seven mountains, and seven kings. And there is a symbolic way to understand this. For instance, the symbolic way to understand this would be to understand that this particular beast in this world has a complete authority over those who dwell on the earth. And the reason I would say that is because the, the number seven, do y'all remember what the number seven represents? Completeness. Right? We, the reason they said that is because we've been studying this for a long time. The number seven is used like 50 some odd times throughout the Revelation, and it is symbolically a representation for completeness. And what does a head represent? A head represents authority. And so if it's seven heads, it, it's a representation of a complete authority. This beast has been given authority over the kings of the earth. This beast has been given authority over the, the peoples and tribes and tongues. This beast has been given authority by Satan. We read that in Revelation 13. I think that's the best way to interpret this. And this beast has been given authority over these kingdoms within the world. The point of all of this symbolism is not to help us solve a puzzle to determine which Roman emperor is being described in this vision. And I know that's probably what some of you are waiting for me to say. Like, which Roman emperor are we talking about? The Revelation is not a puzzle book. The Revelation is a picture book. It's a symbolic representation of what is happening in the world. That's not the point to help us understand which Roman emperor is the one hap you know, on the stage right now. The point is to show this picture of the oppressive power that's being wielded by these empires and kingdoms and governments of the world. Many of them have come, many of them have gone, and the seductive woman, the temptation to sin and worldliness has been influenced in each of those particular kingdoms. I think that's the picture. Babylon sitting upon these places of authority and power. She uses her seduction to draw the church away. We looked at this last week that the beast represents persecution for the people of God and the woman represents seduction. 
And that's what she does. She draws her strength from the state. She spreads her influence through their power. She directs her seduction toward the church. And this horrid woman has caused terror and bloodshed among God's people. And notice about the woman, there are three different representations of these heads. Notice that there's three places that she sits. More symbolism. She sits upon the many waters, which represents her influence that spreads. She sits upon the beast, which shows that she has a demonic foundation to her. And then she sits atop the seven heads, or the seven heels and the seven kings, which means that she directs the empires of this world against the people of God. That's what this symbolism is all about. There are two kingdoms in this world. The kingdom of God. All those who put their trust in Christ and what he's done for us. And there is the kingdom of this world that has a demonic foundation and all different iterations of temptation, whether it's through the mind or through seduction or through money or through power. And John is seeing a vision and he's seeing that those demonic powers will continue to persecute the church and yet they will go to destruction. Their end will come. One commentator I found summarized this chapter very well. And I'm going to end with this because I see a few maybe confused stares out there. We're going to get into more of it in the weeks to come. But Joel Beakey has been really helpful to me as I've been studying through this book. And here's his summary of this particular section. He says this, Throughout Scripture, Babylon represents the world of sinners opposed to God. This means Babylon is always with us. It is not confined to a particular place or time or culture. Babylon is a continuing presence and power in human history. Much in Revelation 17 is difficult to understand. Amen to that. But one truth that emerges is that Babylon is viewed as past, present, and future. Babylon was, is, and is to come. Her essence is the same despite any changes in her outward appearance. John would have recognized the essence of Babylon in Rome, the imperial city set in the midst of seven hills. But in his vision, the mountains give way to ten horns and then to ten kings, meaning that Babylon is constantly changing. Babylon's particular form may change, but her essence is always the same in this world. Babylon then is the world at the center of industry, commerce, culture, and power. This woman stands for everything that tempts and seduces and draws people away from God. All that stirs the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This mystery woman is the harlot city. I hope that helps you. It certainly helped me to put my mind around this vision and what it can represent. And I know there have been a lot of different teachings A lot of different ways that we can understand this. But with this in mind, with this picture in mind, and this explanation in mind, you can see why John would marvel at this vision. You can see why there would be a sense of amazement as well as fear that wells up in his heart. You can see that. But praise be to God that the angel didn't just stop with this vision of terror. He ended by saying, and this Babylon and this beast, they're on their way to destruction. Now I'll close with this thought. The term destruction. Destruction carries with it the idea of something being ruined. Something being ruined because it has sustained so much damage it cannot be replaced. It cannot be repaired. It cannot be put back together. It cannot exist 
It has been laid waste. It has been demolished. And that is the fate of the dragon and the beast and Babylon and those whose names are not written in the book of life. But the opposite of destruction, the opposite of being destroyed in this fashion is to be preserved. Preserved. To be protected against damage. To live on. And the author of Hebrews uses both terms, destruction and preservation, in the same verse... And he uses it in such a way that it describes the the contrast between unbelievers and those who trust in Christ and persevere. Here's what it says in Hebrews 10.39. He says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve our souls. To shrink back from Christ, from trusting in Him and putting your hope and your trust in the world or something else. To shrink back is to face destruction. Those who give their loyalty to the beast, those who fall in love with the seductions of this world, they will suffer this fate. They will face the destruction of God's judgment when the dam breaks and all of that force and fierce anger comes forward. And friend, no amount of worldly pleasure in this Life is worth the destruction of your soul in the fire of God's judgment. But we are not of those who shrink back. As believers in Christ, we have faith in our Savior and Lord, and we remember the gospel, and we live to bring glory to God, and we persevere in the faith. And as a result, our souls will be preserved. And that is our hope. So let's end there. Let me pray for us as we do. Father, I thank you for your word. Confusing and challenging and mysterious though it is, I thank you for the clarity that you give us. And I pray that as we've studied your word this morning, that we can go from this place with with a deeper understanding of the world that we live in and the spiritual battle that is being waged upon it. And I pray that we can see that there is an end in sight for those who've rejected Christ. There's an end in sight for those who oppose Christ. And there is an end in sight for all of the demonic powers that would set themselves against you and against your people. But I I pray that you would also help us to understand that you have a purpose and a plan for your people that stretches even back before the foundations of this world. And our hope is in Christ alone. Our confidence is in Christ and all that he's accomplished for us. So let us persevere in our faith and trust in him no matter what we see in this world, no matter what persecutions come our way, no matter what beasts might stand up and declare themselves. Let us put our hope and our faith and our trust in you. And Lord, we trust that you will preserve our souls. Accomplish your purpose through the preaching of your word, whether that's to draw men to your son through faith in Christ or or whether that's to harden hearts. You, You accomplish your purpose. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.